Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Chapter, Exodus chapter 1 from verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithon and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. So if we go nip over to chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. I was uh, diagnosed with multiple myeloma and it was during the second trimester of my second pregnancy. I was seven months pregnant when I I received the diagnosis. I already had a four-year-old daughter and so receiving the, the diagnosis and hearing about what treatments would be offered to me was a complete shock to me and my family. Multiple myeloma is an incurable blood cancer, unlike some other more commonly known cancers, uh, whereby you can be treated and in effect cured. With myeloma, um, you can be treated and be in a long-term remission for many years, but today it's medically incurable. I started six rounds of chemotherapy, which was later followed up by a um, stem cell replacement therapy. I was in hospital for four weeks, and it was a very, very trying, difficult, and um, emotionally challenging time, because one, I was being separated from my children and my family, with my youngest child being just 10 months old. Secondly, I was experiencing all types of symptoms as a consequence of the chemotherapy drugs and the treatments that I was undergoing that were really harrowing and at times um, painful physically, but mentally um, draining. For me, having a more solid belief that uh, God has got me through thus far gave me the motivation, I think, to really fight and continue to want to stay alive 
despite all the treatments that I was going through. I can't underestimate the power of faith and belief in adverse situations because I am a living testament to that. And I'm not suggesting my period in hospital or even my recovery thereafter has been smooth and pain-free and without its issues. But what it has been, it's been upheld by an underlying faith and belief that it will all come good. And for me so far, in terms of my health and in terms of me being able to even have this in have this interview share my story is remarkable I realized that I wasn't I wasn't trusting him wholeheartedly previously whereas now I do have an innate trust in he will come good even if it's not the desired outcome that I would have initially wanted somewhere down the line it always unravels itself to be the the best judgment or the best decision that really powerful story is a friend of ben Lindsay, and ben is going to come and speak to us in, in a few moments but i just wanted to introduce him to us as a church um, ben is a pastor um, at a church in London that's part of the New Frontiers family of churches that we are a part of. He is the lead pastor of Emmanuel Church at New Cross since 2016. Um, but I first came across him from an article in Premier Magazine uh, about a book that he'd not long written that's called We Need to Talk About Race. Um, very powerful, very challenging, outstanding book telling me all the things that I have done wrong um, and need to get right but in, a, in a gracious, loving way. Um, and a very, very important conversation for the church capital C, certainly in London at the moment. And he's a great voice on that. And we've got 10 copies for £5 available. Um, but maybe we'll say more on that, that later. But Ben's background um, is that he was involved in working for the youth offending team around the Lewisham area. And he's also now, I don't know how he does it, maybe he has a clone. Uh, but he set up a charity called Power the Fight, which is all about bringing an end to youth violence. Um, so so he's a real blessing to have him here. So I'd love for us to give him a very warm welcome as he comes up to preach. Cheers, thank you. Hello, good morning. Um, hopefully my book doesn't make people just feel bad. It's, uh, <laughs> it's meant to be encouragement as well. Um, yeah, it's brilliant to be here. Um, what a space, what a venue, and um, yeah, thank you for having me. So today, I, I do want to talk about grief. I do want to talk about grief versus hope. I do want to talk about suffering. Um, and yeah, as Howard said, Anika is, is, is a good friend of mine, and I'll talk a little bit more about her story a bit later on. But if anything, what you hopefully would have just picked up from reading Exodus and Anika's story is that Life is hard. Would you agree? Life is good, but life is always also hard. And that tension of life being good and life being hard is what I want to kind of talk about 
today, what you hopefully will pick up is that even through the prayers we heard, is that there is some stuff going on. There is suffering going on with us individually. I don't know any of you, but I guarantee that some of you may well be going through some things. And also, there's some stuff going on globally. If we open up our papers or go onto Twitter or whatever it is, you will see that the world, as always, has got this kind of tension going on and there's pain and suffering across the world. And how do we deal with that as individuals? How do we do that if if you're a Christian or even if you're visiting here? How do we deal with that? I heard um, the Archbishop of Canterbury once say that um, as Christians, we're not meant to be optimistic, we're meant to be hopeful. And I think there is a bit of a subtle difference between hopeful and being optimistic. It's almost like with hope, there is something very secure you're holding on to. With optimism, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to be optimistic, but mm, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure what's kind of going on. What I want us to be encouraged that we're going to hold on to hope, the hope, hope of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller, who some of you may well be familiar with, um, pastor, preacher from New York, has written numerous books. He says this, the heart of why people disbelieve and believe in God or decline or grow in character or how God becomes less real or more real in us is suffering. Elizabeth Elliot says this, suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. And she is somebody who lost her first husband um, in the missionary trip. He was killed by the natives there, and the second husband died of cancer. So I think she probably knows what she's talking about. As a pastor, um, you deal with a lot of pain and a lot of suffering from your congregation. As somebody who has worked in the field of youth violence for 20 years, I have unfortunately seen many young people murdered, incarcerated, and I've had to deal with a lot of family trauma uh, with those people connected. And as a Christian, I always have to step into hope. Even though there's a lot of pain and suffering, I always have to direct them to hope. But here's the big question, and this is the question which I always think about, even though I've been a Christian for 20 years and I grew up in a Christian home, I still ask this question, how could a good God, a just God, a loving God allow such Misery, depravity, pain, anguish. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks that, because you're all very holy. And... <laughs> but I think that every now and again. Now, another question is, how can we actually even live well in hope and positivity in the face of hostility? How do we experience hope in this broken world? Another thing that keeps me up at night. And... I suppose Exodus 1 and 2, the the verses we just heard, um, gives us some answers. Points us to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So what I want to do, I just want to pray, and then for the remainder of my time, we're just going to explore a little bit of that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity just to speak your word, to direct people to the hope of the world, which is you, King Jesus. We lift you up today. We praise your name. Holy Spirit, fill this place that your will be done in your mighty name. Amen. Okay, so let's get this into context. Let's do a little bit of a history lesson just for a moment. Um, So back in uh, what you'll see in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, 
God promised a guy called Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky, which is quite funny at the point because Abraham is really old and his wife Sarah is barren, so this is weird. But this is what God said. And they also said that it would be a great nation and they would have their own land. And from the descendants would come one which would defeat Satan. That person, just in case you don't know the end of the story, is Jesus. 400 years before Exodus 1, which we just read, there is a famine that threatens to wipe out Abraham's descendants. But through God's provision, they are saved via Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, he of the Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. I'm not sure he looked like Jason Donovan, but that's another sermon altogether. As a result, his family, people move to Egypt. Everything is nice, great. But in 400 years later, there is a problem. And as we've just read in Exodus 1, 8 to 14, they were initially welcomed and loved and respected, but then they were resented and feared, and these oppressive measures were imposed. And actually, history tells us that that is kind of what has happened in recent history. Come, come to our country, enjoy, and then resentment comes. Maybe some of you have experienced that. And then what we've now got is that this promise to Abraham where there will be a descendant from him which will defeat the evil one is now under threat. Exodus 1 verse 11 to 14, it said that Pharaoh was working the Hebrews ruthlessly. It was basically a way of stopping them to multiply this kind of like birth control, you could say. They'd have no time and energy to have sex. Am I allowed to say sex? Yes, we can say sex. All right, cool. It's not my church, so I'm just going to crack on. So, right. <laughs> but their plans fell. Their plans fell, and they actually multiply. As you continue reading through Exodus 1, there's other threats as well, which we didn't have time to go into. But for example, Pharaoh says in um, Exodus 1, 15, 16, that he's going to kill every newborn baby boy. But that plan fails. And if you read the story, you have these midwives who basically feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and hatched a plan. They defied the authority. And then there was a third threat in Exodus 1, which is effectively genocide. Pharaoh's like, well, that didn't work, so we're just going to kill all infant baby boys. But that plan fails because you have these five women um, who outwit Pharaoh, and eventually this little baby Moses ends up being raised by his Hebrew mother and then goes off to an Egyptian palace to be raised. The point I'm making here is that there is this incredible backdrop in Exodus 1 of slavery, murder, genocide, suffering, adversity, and the question comes back, how can a good God, a just God, a loving God, allow such misery, depravity, pain, and anguish? Helpfully, the hope comes in chapter 2, what we just read. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That is in the um, English Standard Version Bible. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The book of Exodus shows, 
and throughout the Bible that God sees pain and suffering and then acts. We do not serve an inactive God. We don't serve a static God. He's not like blind. He doesn't close his eyes like I do when I watch horror movies. He fully, yeah, I'm not a fan of horror movies at all. I can trace it back to back in the day when I watched Michael Jackson's Thriller video, which my uncle forced me to watch when I was about four or five, which is again revealing my age. And after that, no more horror movies for me. <sighs> we digress. But the point is this, God isn't like me, fortunately. And he sees all the pain and all the suffering, but wants to do something about it. So I want to talk a little bit now about how do we deal with that tension in our own lives between grief and suffering and the hope that we know has been proven in this, that when there's pain, when there's suffering and the world's in trouble, God sends a saviour. Exodus 1 and 2 helps us to explore why there is suffering and how we handle suffering. So, why? Well, for us to understand the why, we're going to have to do and go wider and look at a bigger picture. Now, uh, just to acknowledge, I support the best football team in the whole world. And um, just before I reveal that team, because you should all know, it's a team which has won more Premier League, well, trophies full stop over the last 10 years. Uh, and that would be Chelsea Football Club, just to be clear. Can't argue with the facts, so let's just put it there. Now, also, just to be really clear, um, I had, didn't start supporting Chelsea when a rich Russian oligarch turned up in 2003. Unfortunately, I had to endure Chelsea. This is all about suffering. Back in the 80s and 90s, when we were really bad, and the stadium wasn't very nice, and my dad used to take me along to Stamford Bridge, and um, he used to take me to the shed end, which was the end which was behind the goal. And the Shed End is notorious for aggro. In fact, they had a song which was Chelsea Aggro, Chelsea Aggro, Chelsea Aggro. And they had some other songs which I cannot repeat in a church. But you get an idea of the type of vibe which was going on there. Now, the problem I had being a little boy, not other than the fact that all my friends supported Liverpool, and I really wanted to support Liverpool in the 80s. One supporter there, that's cool. Are you from Liverpool? Oh, so right then. I respect you, it's good, because... <laughs> a lot of people support these teams and then they don't live anywhere near them. That's good. Well done. Um, and so I'm there and I'm a little boy. Now, the problem is being behind the goal is when the action was coming towards you, it was fine. And I could see him, I was enjoying myself. But when the action was at the other end, it was a nightmare. I'm trying to jump up and everybody's standing up and I hated it. So as I got older, I convinced my dad and now when I take my son to Stanford Bridge, we always go on in the West Stand which basically is the stand behind the dugout, and I can see the whole game. I can see the build-up play, I can see both ends, I can pretend that I'm the manager and the tactics, and I'm beginning to whisper into my son's ear, this is what I would be doing, and all this type of stuff. And it's amazing. Effectively, what I've given myself is a wider picture of the game, instead of this, this, this one view behind the goal. And other than my suffering as a... Chelsea supporter in the 80s and 90s, the link is this. If we're going to have an understanding of why they're suffering in the world, we've got to widen our gaze. We can't just have it and look at it from one perspective. You see, the reason why we're in this broken world is because of sin. And that 
little act in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve has impacted everything. The earth, and I'm down with climate change and all that, but I do sometimes just want to bring it right back to why the earth is hurting right now. It's impacted our hearts. It's impacted everything. But for us to get a real wide lens picture, it's always good to go to Ephesians 6. This won't come up, but Ephesians 6 for me really helps where it says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's this ongoing battle behind the scenes that we are not aware of, or we are aware of, but we don't see it. Satan's strategy is always to stop the promises of God. As we saw in Exodus 1 with the seed of Abraham, it's like we're going to stop that, and that means that's pain for us. And it's the same strategy he's using. But Satan fell. Jesus was born. Jesus won. Jesus promised to build the church, his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. But Satan is still trying to use the same strategy today, trying to upset the people of God. Now, you all look like cultured people. Um, I'm from southeast London. You guys are all from, like, well, you know, you're here. So this is, I'm going to assume you're all cultured people. And therefore, you, all of you would have gone to the Vienna Opera House, right? Yeah. <laughs> Go there every, time, every weekend. We were there last night, you know. Vienna Opera House. And this is what you see. You see the stage, and you see the opera, and you see the actors, and you see all these people, and this is what you see when you've paid good money. And it's wonderful. But behind, behind the stage, if we get the next slide, this is what's actually going on. There's, like a, there's mechanics, there's lighting directors, and theatre producers, and there's hundreds of people making sure that our entertainment works and looks really well, and without these guys, the people on the main stage, it can't work. It cannot work. But there are two things going on here. And ultimately, our life is a stage. <laughs> our life is what's going on in what everybody can see, this kind of visible world. But behind the scenes, there's this invisible kingdom. There's this spiritual battle going on. And that impacts what goes on in front of the stage. In the same way that what goes on behind the scenes at the Vienna Opera House impacts what goes on on stage. And we've got to understand that this battle is going on and that plays out in our lives. This is the reason why the Hebrews were going through so much pain and suffering. But why is this important? It's important because it provides context to our pain and our grief. It gives us a bigger picture. It's like if we don't understand this, it's a bit like going to the doctors and I'm saying, well, hi, I've got a headache. And the doctor's like, well, let me look at your foot. I'm like, okay, cool, but I've got a headache. Yeah, yeah, but let me just look at your toenail. But I've got a headache. You see, the problem is, is if we don't get get to the root cause, we don't get the correct diagnosis, we don't get the correct solution. The root cause is that there is sin in this world and it's playing out in our health, 
It's playing out in our relationships. It's playing out in our decisions. It's playing out how, how the earth operates. This is what's going on. We've got to get the correct diagnosis. But how, then, do we actually deal with this? This ongoing battle, this bigger picture, that's all fine. But how do we deal with it day to day? Well, it's by remembering his promises and stepping into our faith in him. We've got to navigate this broken world. So my friend Anika, who you just saw, it's probably the first time in my life I've known somebody before they were a Christian, led them to Christ, um, then watched them go through cancer. And even though myeloma is not curable, she is in remission and she's living her life much better than she would have been a few years ago. So I've gone through this incredible journey with her. And it's uh, blown me away. Absolutely blown me away. It basically, this suffering she was going through clarified her identity in Jesus Christ. Gave her confidence in the purposes of God and enabled her to be really courageous. There were moments when I'd visit her in hospital and before I knew it, she had to have some type of like operation or a mini kind of procedure. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to walk out at this point. She's like, no, 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 you're the only one here. So can you hold my hand through this? And I saw the pain in her face as they're doing something in her back, bone marrow and all this type of stuff. And seeing her hang on to Jesus in that setting was a game changer for me. Because we can all hang on to Jesus when we're cool and everything's nice. We can all praise his name. We can say Jesus is king, but how often do we do it when it's really life isn't good? You see, what I saw of my friend is that she held on to verses like Isaiah 43 too. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Love those verses, but it wasn't until I saw my friend actually go through the fire and see her come out the other end of it, I was like, my goodness, God, you are real. You truly are real. And when I say come out the other end of it, let me just be very clear. It's not like she's healed. It's not like she's healed. She has to live with this every day. But I, I saw God hold her through this and he will hold you through whatever you're going through it's like a present hope verses like psalm 34 18 the lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit a present hope i saw my friend go through that or a future hope revelation 21 4 he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 4, it's like, well, God gives us a present hope. Daily, we look to the scriptures, and we see his promises, and we hold on to those. But we also have to understand that no suffering, or suffering, all suffering, is temporary. All suffering is temporary. And this is what this present or this future hope from Revelation 21 teaches us. This is 
We know there's suffering, we know there's grief, we know there's a lot of stuff going on globally. There's things going on now, even some stuff we don't see. I was glad that I see some young people here. One of the things which I do, I sit on Sadiq Khan's Violence Reduction Unit, which basically is trying to develop what is known as a public health model specifically for youth violence in London. And he did this uh, survey for 8,000 kids in London. And the three things which they, uh, they got back which troubled young people more than anything else was knife crime, gangs, um, and people robbing them. And that blew me away because at 16, they were not the three things which were on my mind. Girls, Street Fighter 2 on Super Nintendo, which I'm showing my age now, uh, and football, pretty much. But these guys were like, no, this is what is concerning me. Now, what that taught me was that there is this trauma, this collective trauma our young people are dealing with, even if youth violence or knife crime isn't right at your doorstep. One kid said to me, big man. I was like, yes, I am bigger than you. Big man. So are you telling me, honestly, that if you saw someone who looked like you walking towards you, you're not going to assume that they've got a knife or they're going to rob you? I'm like, no way. They're probably going to smile or ignore them or nod or whatever. And then he said, I'm telling you, every young person who looks my age and looks like me approaching me, I'm assuming they've got a knife. I turned to the 25 other kids in the class, do you all feel like that? Yeah. Now that's a problem. That is a massive problem. Because when we look at suffering, we look at the things like maybe my friend Danica or some of the other stuff, which is really obvious. But there's something else going on with our young people now, which is more trauma and mental. My goodness, we need to pray. We need to pray, and we need to really look at these verses and say, well, God, I need you to turn up in these situations, and we need to hold on to not just the future hope, but the present hope as well. Some of you are going through things now, and I was praying about this earlier on, and I think, in fact, I know God is saying to you, you've got to make a choice today. Are you going to suffer well or suffer badly? When you're suffering, you can choose either way. I've got a friend of mine who, uh, his first child had, uh, has got Down syndrome, his second child had a lot of um, epileptic fits. He wasn't expecting that. There's no early warning for that type of stuff. But what I clocked with him and his, his wife is that they suffer well. Their suffering is painful, I've seen it, but they suffer well. They go to scripture, they seek people to pray with them. He hasn't gone and cheated on his wife, got drunk. And some people might be like, oh, you're going through a lot. So you've had a few too many drinks, it's probably the least of your worries. No, 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 he suffered well. I just felt that God wants to just challenge some of us. He sees what's going on, but do you want to suffer well or suffer badly? We need to be clear on the Christian perspective of suffering. Christianity is not like fatalism. We, we understand that actually suffering is overwhelming. We know that from a Christian perspective, it's not like Buddhism. We know that suffering is real. We know Christianity is not like karma. We know that suffering is often unfair. 
we know that it's not like secularism, secularism in the sense that we know that suffering is meaningful. I've gone through some things. If you read my book, which isn't a plug for it, I'm just saying, if you read my book, you will see that I've gone through some things. And it's only when I was writing my book, I realized, ah, maybe that's the reason why I went through some things, actually. So I can share my experiences and hopefully it blesses and points people to you, Jesus. Suffering is meaningful. It's not like the culture, you know, our culture. We try to avoid suffering. We try to deny suffering. We try to fix it. I suppose there's an element where, as Christians, there is a purpose to it. And if it's faced correctly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and more spiritual power. If we are going to deal with this tension between hope and grief, we're going to have to look to the promises of Jesus daily, walk in faith and trust him. But we're also going to have to break some of these lies which we've been fed by the culture, that bad things don't happen to good people. That's one of them, isn't it? We hear that. And then when something happens to a good person, why? Why? What? I've done everything I was meant to do. I don't know where we get this stuff from. Because you know what? Just in case we don't know, the worst thing happened to the best person. Yeah? We, get, we know that, right? The worst possible death happened to the most perfect person. So this philosophy that we have that bad things don't happen to good people, I, it just doesn't make any sense because it's proven to be the opposite. Which brings me to the cross. Our hope can only be in the cross. And this is the reason why. Elizabeth Elliott, who I've quoted already, she's written a book which I'd really recommend you buying called Suffering is Never for Nothing. It's an incredible book. It's an easy read. I weirdly read it over Christmas when I should have been more joyful, but, you know, I wanted to read it. It's a great book. Um, it does point to joy. But she says this. The first principle is that of the cross. Life comes out of death. I bring God my sorrows, and he gives me his joy. I bring him my losses, and he gives me his gains. I bring him my sins, and he gives me his gains. I bring him my deaths, and he gives me his life. But the only reason God can give me his life is because he gave me his death. We go to the cross to get life, to get hope, to get encouragement. If you are a Christian here, maybe you might have forgotten that. If you're not, or you're visiting, I'll just encourage you to really engage in that truth. So if the band wants to come up, I just want to just land with this. How do you live truly in a way where you find hope in this broken world? Well, what I want to say is if, if you are visiting here, we have to understand that when we see the stuff which is going on around us, it's not because God doesn't care. In fact, it's the reason why he sent his son. 
because he cares so much. God is not static or passive to suffering and pain. What we see in the story of Exodus is that he sends Moses to free his people, the Hebrews, under Pharaoh. What we see in Jesus is like he's the ultimate Moses, the ultimate Moses. God sends him to set us all free. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Whatever you're going through, the promise is that God knows and he sees and he wants to walk with you. He wants to hold your hand. He wants to comfort you. He wants to encourage you. He wants you to suffer well. He wants you to point, point you to him. I just, um, I just want to pray. I just want to pray for people. And I just feel like there's, there's people here who have got hidden suffering. There's people who might have some obvious suffering. There's people who might have things which might be small to you and it might be huge. But I want to pray. But if there's anybody who is, is really like senses that I just need to be pointed towards the hope of Jesus in my own personal suffering of whatever's going on. I'd just like you to stand because I just want to pray for you. That's all it is. And this is the moment in which preachers really dread, but at the same time, I trust God. And if it's you and if you, just want, you just want a prayer specifically for what's going on, I just want you to stand because I'm just going to pray. And that's it. It's very simple. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that you see everything, that you're not a static God, you're not closed, your eyes are not closed to what's going on. I thank you the history of the Bible is one of salvation. You see pain, you send people, and ultimately you sent Jesus to restore us and give us salvation. God, I pray for everyone who is standing here. I don't know their context, but you do. I pray for your spirit, come close to them. Send your wisdom, send your encouragement, send your love, send your healing. Breathe upon them. Let them know there is hope in your word. There's hope in your cross. Let them know that there is nothing too big for you to deal with. Nothing. You are the God of the impossible. Blow upon your people now. In your mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.